Nick Newling had what you'd call a pretty normal, even idyllic childhood. But life took a difficult turn for him when he started to avoid situations and the people around him at the age of 15. A top performing scholarship student, Nick then plummeted into mental illness and shame and things got a whole lot worse before they got better. This conversation really explores Nick's own personal story and journey into the darkness of his mental illness and then out into the light again as he learns to live with that illness and the ripple effects that really happen in his life and with the people around him who he loves. Nick is amazing and is now a mental health advocate who reaches millions of people around the world. And I love his style. He's humorous, he's warm, he's insightful, but he's very real. This gets real pretty quick, this episode, and a warning to those of you who listen in um, that Nick's family has faced unimaginable loss and sadness, not just of Nick, but someone else in his family. The way, though, that Nick talks about it, has accepted it, and that the family have come around this tragedy is really amazing and shows his incredible resilience despite his own demons that he's had to face. Yeah, I think this is a true story of pain, but it's also a real story of hope. And I think it also gives you great hope that even in the face of a serious mental illness, there are so many steps you can take to access support and recovery to enable you to live a full and thriving life like Nick does. This episode does deal with some complex and sensitive issues. And if that triggers anything in you, call Lifeline on 131114. At 15, things started to change for you. Can you talk a bit about what happened at that time for you? Yeah, things massively changed. Uh, progressively got worse bit by bit, starting from about mid-year seven in high school. And it, it started off as what I thought was study stress. I thought it was me putting a lot of pressure on myself. And it, it really was more anxiety and depression. It was more clinically diagnosable mental illnesses and I just wasn't able to see that for what it was and so I would just uh, I just burn out really and I think so much of this thinking trap was this idea that you can only derive any sort of sense of joy or purpose from achievement and I think that's something that the education system promoted that everything is sort of metric based, everything can be measured and you're only sort of worth as much as what you can output. And so I sort of got myself all wound up thinking that's that's all I really am. So I would I'd get really angry, which wasn't me, you know, as a person, I wasn't really like that normally. I would cry for no reason that I could explain. Um, I'd avoid situations and people a lot and I just sort of came unstuck and it got worse as time went on throughout year seven, year eight and year nine. Uh, when you say it got worse, can you describe what it felt like to, to be you at that time? What were some examples of what was coming up for you inside your own head? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of it was that sort of classical understanding of depression where it's, you know, dragging one's feet around and just struggling to get out of bed and just constantly feeling like nothing is worth doing and then there's no hope for the future and and just basic everyday things became impossible. And it's, it's, it's hard to explain why. The fact that I struggled just to brush my teeth or shower 
And someone would look at that and go, well, what's wrong with you? Just go do it. And there's just some barrier in the way that I couldn't explain to you. Even now, I couldn't say why I wasn't able to do basic things, but I just couldn't. This is a really common story that people struggling with mental illness are looking for a reason why and an explanation and something in their environment that can make sense of their experience. Were you doing that as well? Yeah, definitely. I struggled so much for many years wondering what was causing all of this and what was driving it and why it couldn't be made better. And I I really, really struggled with that. And it was only years later when I got a lot better that wondering the why became less important to me. But I thought for many years, if I can work out why, then I can fix it. Mm -hmm. And I, I really thought that I had thought my way into this whole thing and that I should be able to think my way out of it. If if my own sort of negative thoughts had led me down this path, then if I can reverse that somehow, it should be fine. And it just, I mean, it really wasn't. But it, it got quite deep, you know, beyond those everyday struggles of just maintaining and getting through life and trying to have some hope for the future and all that sort of stuff. So much went with it. So much self-esteem goes with it. And there really was that deep depression as well, though. But but a lot of it was... It, it was sort of... um, It wasn't that deep, horrible, oh, I can't move kind of thing. A lot of it was just a bit of a numbness. It was... I wasn't always at that very low level. It was sometimes things were, like, fine but not great. But I just couldn't really... I couldn't really feel good. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't smile sometimes. Or if I did, I was just faking it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always the pits of despair. Sometimes it was just like a, a general numbness. Mm. So an ongoing apathy as well that sometimes yeah. dived into a deeper place but was with you all the time. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And But to describe all that experience though, so much of it was was hiding and feeling isolated. You know, you could you could look at a... Uh, you know, you could look at the literature of what these illnesses feel like, and I don't think it would really get a real human sense for it because um, we we often miss things in the literature about what it feels like to have to just pretend everything's fine or have that fear that if people found out, then they would they'd be really nasty or they'd judge me or even just sort of hiding from myself. You know, if I admit I have a problem, then that's the point at which I do. Um, so much of it was confusion and worrying about what happens next. And going back to the whole vet thing, I I knew that being a vet, which is really all I really cared about, was attached completely to my ability to perform in school and make the most of my scholarship. And so with these mental illnesses came uh, an inability to perform in school. I stopped being able to read. I couldn't really listen in class anymore. And so when that went, I I panicked a lot Mm. into being, well, now I'm left with nothing. So, Nick, um, your mum talks about uh, when she started to notice uh, that you were not doing your homework and and retreating, uh, some of these things you've detailed. And you describe yourself about a moment your mum came into your room and you do, and you talk about the walls closing in and seeing people dots and, and, and being scared. Tell us about that moment for you. Yeah, there's all these things that seem to just bleed from one thing into the other and it's hard to really pinpoint 
when things change. But yeah, it did morph into what seemed a lot more like features of psychosis where I'd have these these voices that just wouldn't stop and I'd get my my words all jumbled around in my mind. It's sort of like, you know, when you can you think thoughts and it, it sort of plays in your mind as a spoken sort of uh, conversation in some sense. I had that, but it wasn't really me uh, controlling those thoughts. I didn't audibly hear it in my ears, but it was sort of a voice in my head. And it, it just often didn't make sense. It was just random words in no sort of sensical sentence all flying around in my head. And it was just impossible to ignore and so in those moments when yeah everything seemed to be collapsing in on me um yeah it's I didn't want to worry my parents you know I was so close well, I still am really close to them and I didn't want to hide from them I didn't want to you know pretend like everything's fine with them because they're probably the only ones who can really help me or, or help me get help but there was this sense of I would try to keep it all in as much as I could. Mm. Around and obviously, that time. you I didn't got to, to a, tell my parents. obviously you got to a point where um, that was difficult to do because your, uh, you know, your mental activity had increased. So at fifteen, you were admitted mm. to the Rivendale Adolescent Psych Ward. How did your parents, Phil and Jane, who've been incredible supporters of your of you, uh, how did they cope at that time? It must have been so hard for them, and I, and I don't think I'll ever really know what it was like for them at that time because I think as a as a young person then I was sort of well sort of completely I was completely stuck in my own head I couldn't really see outside myself very well and but also they did a pretty good job of keeping me um not so tuned in to how hard it must have been for them I think they really wanted me to see the side that was incredibly encouraging and supportive and they didn't want me to see how hard it was on them because they didn't want me to shut them out anymore so yeah going into Rivendell was I suppose in some sense a bit of a it felt like a bit of a defeat it felt like I'm meant to be at the top of all my sets in all my subjects at school and now I can't even be there at all. I can't even I can't even sit there and do nothing. You know, I can't even just draw cartoons. I, I can't even do that. And so going to Rivendell, it was like, okay, maybe I can justify this by saying I'm going to go here for a month or two, um, get back on track again, go straight back to school and sort of be on my merry way on this vet path. And so... I was okay doing that. But for them, they just wanted to see me do well, to be well, to be happy. It's it's not so much to ask for a parent. You know, you want to do your best and have your kids do well and, and enjoy life. And it just seemed like everything they would do, everything I would do, couldn't lead to that. So quite a sense of failure you're describing. Yeah, failure and confusion and a hope that this would be a very short-term thing. It seemed like every moment was, okay, well, the solution's just around the corner. It's like there's this new medication that'll that'll probably do the job. And then you do that and that doesn't work. And you go, okay, I'm going to try this different sort of style of talking therapy and then that doesn't do the job. And it's just sort of constantly hoping and nothing working. And, and when you had that experience, did you think, what am I doing wrong? Or were you thinking, how is the system letting me down? Was it internalizing or externalizing that process? A bit of both. I suppose it was, 
I initially thought this must have been my own doing. I thought that I'm wasting doctors and counsellors' time by talking to them because other people have bigger problems than me and I felt that I must be cursed or something. And I I guess without knowing what the process was of it actually forming these mental illnesses and without doctors being able to conclusively say as well i just thought this is this must be somehow my fault Mm. um i knew though that i was doing everything that i could be doing to get well i would i'd never refuse any treatment i'd never refuse to see a specialist or anything like that so at a certain point yeah it does shift into going well what's wrong with Medical me? science. And what's, or, yeah, yeah well, what's, yeah, what's wrong with me, me and what's wrong what's with wrong, medical yeah, science? Yeah, no, right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what's wrong with me that medical science can't fix me? Mm. I mean, I, I mean, as we probably all do in our journey of trying to get well, you find some doctors who probably shouldn't be doctors, but for the most part, they're great. There's wonderful doctors, wonderful nurses, um, and wonderful people who are going through the similar things that I was. Um, who are all just trying to make life better and it just you feel like you're just banging your head against a wall in we're doing everything right why is nothing working yeah exhausting and demoralizing and frightening I imagine and what was the impact like on your brothers Ben and Christopher at the time that you were in Rivendale and struggling so deeply I think it must have been pretty challenging for them as well um, Christopher in particular was also struggling with his own uh, mental illness and but again I think I always felt very supported by everyone in the family I never saw from my brothers that they were you know put out by it that they were sort of grumbling and groaning it was it was a real sense of support from them but certainly it must have been hard for them because we were all very close all of us kids were even though we were very very different we were very close and so for them to see their younger brother who's always been a happy go lucky kid hardly speaking you know walking around with my, you know just shuffling my feet around and just feeling like a, a hollow, empty shell. Was it a time of c- connection for you and Christopher? Did he share any of his experiences with you or vice versa? Could you connect on that level? Yeah. Yeah, we could, which was interesting because he was a very confident, outgoing person, which was the opposite of me at the time. And so when he was going through his own mental illness, he wasn't very open about that to everybody. He was quite open to the family, but not to everyone. But for me and him, yeah, we did. We were able to speak about what we were both going through, but not as much as I'd like to. I think we, we, we touched on it at times and he was very protective of me. And I, I certainly looked up to him and I wanted to be like him. Um, but I, I think we didn't really get as deep as I wished we could have. And I do think that probably came from a place of of fear and maybe even just a bit of awkwardness. That's what happens when we don't know how to, we don't have the skills and the tools to speak about these things. Mm. You just don't always really know what to say. So it sounds like, um, although you had some shared experiences, um, that Christopher's um, outside life um, looked quite different to what was going on for him in his inner turmoil. Um, Chris was uh, captain of the rugby team and, and, and still at school when he had his illness. What happened with Christopher? 
He was struggling for a number of years and we put a lot more focus on me because I was more vocal about it and the symptoms seemed to be probably more alarming and because I was also quite suicidal at the time I was I was pretty open about that and and people were really worried about me um with Christopher he was also experiencing some similar things to me as well he was very suicidal he was he'd sort of mentally checked out of life uh, to some degree and in the same way that I had this dream of being a vet he had this dream of being a professional rugby player and similarly when that dream seemed to be taken away from me due to not being able to work in school anymore he had his dream taken away from him as well he had some physical issues with his legs and he just went down this path um he would run away from home sometimes he wouldn't show up to school um he would self-medicate a lot he was getting help from doctors but i think he probably wasn't telling them the full story and so um we ended up losing christopher to suicide um shortly after i turned 16 and it was a little before he turned 18 and um it didn't make a lot of sense to be honest it was just one of those um yeah I, i don't i don't think there was a way any of us could have prepared ourselves for that it was just this horrible thing and it didn't feel real I'd never lost anyone Uh, I'd never known anyone who died at that point all my grandparents were alive and I think maybe looking back on it putting the pieces together it, it made more sense but yeah it just completely blindsided us and but the weird thing is, I, I remember, we all grieve so differently. That's one thing I've learned over the years is that there's not these standard stages of grieving that we sort of hear about in movies and stuff. Um, we're all quite different. And my process was I felt quite locked out of it. I felt everyone else was able to grieve. And it took me a long time to get there. I felt numb. I couldn't even feel sad. I just felt numb. And um, and I missed him dearly. But to be honest, I, I was also... I wished it was me, you know. I remember talking to a counsellor about this and, and he said, you know, how do you feel toward Christopher? Are you sort of angry? Are you, you know, whatever it might be. And I said, I'm actually just jealous, you know. It's like all these years I've just wanted to not wake up um, because I knew it was never going to get better it started off being this hope for like maybe things will be fine one day and then at a certain point it was just like the doctors are just guessing you know like no one knows so it was shortly after i had had uh ect which is um shock therapy and that was a very last resort and when that didn't work it's just like how can you possibly have any hope anymore it's it's not even worth trying to be hopeful it's just there's this is not going to change. And so um, when when I was really suicidal around that time, the one thing that really held me back a lot was this this idea of what would happen to my family and imagining the negative impact it would have on them and how much they'd always supported me. And um, 
it became a real source of conflict. I, I used to get quite angry toward them because I felt like, okay, yes, they're trying to help me, but it just felt like they're kind of just keeping me here. I'm just sort of stuck. And so when Christopher died, I had to see all that up close. You know, I was forced to really see what that impact was, you know, that we... I mean, the community came together in a, in a, a really helpful, supportive way, but that you're still left with nothing in our experience. That's the way we saw it. And, you know, people turn up and they bring flowers and everything, but then there's a certain point in time where that stops happening. And people don't really know what to say, and particularly if we're isolating ourselves because we don't want to go out and be seen as the people who are dealing with this and and my mum felt very guilty about it even though it was not at all her fault she carried that with her and so she'd go do her shopping at like six in the morning because she thought people were were pointing their finger at her you know so after seeing the impact of Christopher's death you started to view your own suicidal thoughts differently yeah I, I feel like I was I was forced to it wasn't this this inspirational thing of you know, a a sort of silver lining phoenix from the ashes. Okay, now I'm just going to do it. It wasn't that at all. It was just like, well, the only thing that's made me feel any positivity and that maybe I just won't have to keep going, that's off the table now, you know. So it was no longer even an option to seeing what that impact was and confirming my beliefs about it that – we stopped having Christmas and we, we had to move house and, and all this sort of stuff. It was just, that's real. So yeah, it became a thing of, it's not like I had more energy or inspiration to get well. It was just like, well, I'm either going to live out my natural years like this. I'm never going to have a job, never going to have a girlfriend, going to live at my parents' house forever. And that's just that, or it's, I'm going to get better, but I wasn't in control of which way it would go. Mm. And so what was that road to recovery like? Obviously early on there was some misdiagnoses and different treatment regimes. Can you talk to us a bit about um, how your recovery was enabled? Yeah, definitely. So I'd I'd come back to school about halfway through year nine. Um, so that was probably uh, about a year, a year and a bit before Christopher died. And so I was already suicidal even before he died. But afterwards, yeah, a lot of people were quite worried about me. Um, The school was very helpful and very supportive of me. They never gave me any pressure um, about the schoolwork. It was just really let's take this more of a a sort of um, well-being approach and working out what things can make me happy outside of just working at school. Um, The counsellor took me to hospital because I was really really not doing well and I ended up being in a a locked ward for a while and that was just sort of rock bottom and I was there for I think about three months in and out of the intensive care and what did happen in that place was I got the right diagnosis and that was something that I mean, I'd heard it all. <laughs> I'd heard it all. I just imagine this idea of a doctor just flipping through the DSM, you know, the the sort of handbook of mental illnesses, and just 
flipping at a certain page and going, oh, look, it's probably that. I actually finally got this. I think this is actually it. And the diagnosis was uh, bipolar. And that had come up before. It was never really confirmed. It didn't quite seem to fit. Maybe, maybe not. Um, But I basically got on the right treatment for the right condition. And there was a huge change in even just a matter of months, maybe even weeks. There was a massive, massive change. And it took years to really, really get well to where I needed to be, where I am now. But there was just a huge milestone very, very quickly. And I almost immediately felt like I can do this. I can live again. I might not be a vet, but I can be something else. And and it's worth persevering. What did the diagnosis mean to you? Oh, at first, very little because I kind of just went along with it. <laughs> it wasn't like a, oh, yeah, that that's right. Let's do it. I was kind of like, all right, doc. Like, well, you're whatever. thinking here's another diagnosis. I've had many. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Heard it all before. It was, yeah, over the years, you know, anxiety, OCD, schizophrenia, just all these different things. And so to be told that um, after seeing this particular doctor for probably nine months or so, he'd always said, um, I'm going to stick with you until we work it out. I'm not going to refer you. We're just going to make sure we get it right. And, and he did. And uh, it meant very little because I didn't know what it was. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, okay, I do have highs and lows of mood, but sort of don't we all? But then when I when he showed me more specific parts of it that other people with bipolar report, that just seemed too specific to be to be wrong. It was things like um, noticing coincidences a lot, which just seems like a weird <laughs> a weird part of a condition. Mm. It's things like. Um, uh, speaking very quickly and getting frustrated when people speak slowly, like everyone speaks slowly. Um, it's having these grand plans for, um, you know, amazing achievements that, that I can do. And, and then they sort of never end up happening. Um, lots and lots and lots of things. Do you view yourself now as the illness as is part of you, is separate from you? What's it done to your identity generally? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I don't even feel like I have it anymore, which is a, which is a great, a great problem to have. <laughs> it's, it's so, you know, I have bipolar, but like, do I, you know, I, I take a very small, <laughs> I take a really small maintenance dose of medication each day. It's like nothing has no side effects. I'd, I had so many meds in the past that had side effects and I was able to get to a point where they were being able to be tweaked by a doctor and the dosage changed to a point where now it's kind of like things are just sort of fine. So on a, a neurological level, yes, it is still a part of my, my brain, but um, I don't see it as something that is me. But also even years ago when when I really was struggling with it and still actively experiencing all those difficult symptoms, I was still able to compartmentalize it and mm. I don't know where that came from. I think it might have been the language we use at home. It was very much um, my illness. It wasn't me being sick. It was sort of, it was just like, yeah, like my, I don't know, my gangrenous toe. It was just like a thing that you can, can separate. Yeah, yeah. I, I like Nick with symptoms of uh, bipolar as opposed to 
Nick yeah. in his entirety. Yeah, and it helped because then I can I can actually step back from it a little bit and go, well, let's you know, let's freeze off the water or whatever, you know, however you want to look at it. It's <laughs> it's a thing that, that can be viewed in many different ways and one of them is a medical condition and we know that there's a lot of research behind it. There needs to be more, but there's a lot of research behind it and there's treatments for it. And yes, you have to wonder, is it worth throwing away the highs to also throw away the lows? And uh, I mean... The answer to that question lies in what state of mania or depression you're in, I suppose. Mm. If you asked me when I was in the pits of despair, yes, God, get it out of me. You know, but in, in the highs, yeah, it's hard. But the other thing as well that's important to note is that because we looked at this for many years at the time as uh, what's called, you know, a unipolar depression, or most people just call it depression when you just have the lows, Um we viewed the highs at the time as being, uh, I'm symptom free. I'm back to normal again. I'm being my old creative self. I'm on stage and having a great time rather than that's actually a symptom of a different condition. Mm. But you didn't know that at the time. No, no. Mm. It's a very hard one to diagnose correctly. And a lot of people wait a lot longer than I do to get the diagnosis. Mm. Keep doing you uh, because you're remarkable the way you can give all of us an insight into into your world and your experience. Uh, the world's all the better for having you and your story in it, so thanks for sharing so openly with us today. We always like to end by uh, talking about the fact that being human is actually very messy and you, of all people, know that. Who do you think, when you look around at the humans in the world, who do you think is doing human well? Oof. Who is doing human well? Um Oh God, I can think of so many. I don't I don't know if I want to put them on the spot if they'd be embarrassed about that. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the answer. <laughs> I'm gonna give you the answer that sounds like a, a total suck up, right? <laughs> but my I seriously believe that my my family, um, my my wife, my parents, my my siblings, like you know, they're they're let's focus particularly on my parents. They went through incredible trauma. They had lost all hope. They managed to stay together and mm. during and with grief and trauma as part of their lives still managed to structure their lives in a way where some sort of sense of what might produce joy um, can still coexist with grief and trauma. And what that's led to is a family that, although we had a lot of a lot of bumps along the way, um, we're, we're able to, to function and, and have a lot of joy in a lot of ways as well. So I think seeing what they've done to support me um, and what mum's done in, in writing her book and, and getting that out there, it's just like I hope I can be that good a parent one day. I won't be. I'm sure I won't be, but I'd like, I like to think that's, that's the model to follow. Mm. There's a line in a Leonard Cohen song, uh, he talks about the cracks that let the light in and it sounds like your family mm. has been able to do that, bring up a lot of light uh, in, in the darkness. So amazing stuff. Yeah, goosebumps Thank you and, so and much. tears and you're going to make it, you're going to make an amazing and flawed parent. <laughs> <laughs> like a diamond. I always hope, for, yeah, I always hope for a little bit of both. Yeah, keep it real, right? <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. 
we know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us. So what we really hope is that these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe a few others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. Listener.